Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a Patreon, an Amazon booklist, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com. And of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. Getting away with murder has always been a difficult and ultimately unlikely affair. Even in the 19th century, before DNA analysis, fingerprint databases, or even any real proper detective agencies, it was still a challenge that many criminals tried and failed. There were some, however, that did manage to achieve the feat. Whether it be through cool calculation or dumb luck, there was always opportunity for the enthusiastic murderer willing to think outside the box. In Canada, during the mid-19th century, one man, William Turner, managed to commit and get away with murder, either through dumb luck, due to an unlikely double being framed for the crime, or through an incredible talent for acting. After more than 150 years, the question has always remained, which was it, luck or the long game? This is Dark History, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whichever it is with you, and welcome to Dark Histories. I'm Ben. This is season three, episode 11, I think. This week, I've got a bit of a different episode, a bit of a quirky one, but we're doing quite a lot of murders, quite a lot of kind of, well, obviously it's dark history, so quite a lot of kind of down, dark stuff. I just fancied a bit of a break this week, and I found this really quirky tale um, in the newspapers when I was looking up stuff for other things, actually. And um, I came across this and I explored it a little bit. And the more I explored it, just the more I found it kind of compelling, really. So I decided to write it up into an episode. So, you know, I hope you guys enjoy it this week. A couple of things before we do start. I never tend to really ask for reviews because I think, you know, we all hear it on every podcast we listen to and we don't want to keep hearing people asking for reviews. But the problem is, is they do help. So my kind of way around this is we've got our second anniversary coming up quite soon. So I never really talk of reviews, but due to the second anniversary coming up, we've got quite a lot of stuff going on. And one of those, I'm going to really do sort of a review drive. So this month, I would really like it if you could review the podcast on iTunes or whatever software that you listen to the podcast on. Um, and if you do so and screenshot it and send a picture of it to social at darkhistories.com. I will send out sticker packs to everyone who leaves a review because basically I say I try not to ask too much. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I kind of did a review beg. So like I say, just before we start, I'm going to do this kind of little push and say that, you know, the month of June, which is when this little kind of promotion is going to run for with the sticker packs. If you can do it, that's kind of our review drive. So, you know, get on board and that would be awesome. And speaking of the second anniversary episode, 
definitely want to stick around and listen to the end of the episode because there's going to be some stuff that I'm going to be talking about in terms of putting the second anniversary episode together, hopefully with the help of as many of you guys as possible, really, um, because it would be really cool. Basically, I'm going to try and make like a community made episode. So, yeah, keep an ear out. I'll, I'll explain more about that at the end. As usual, I want to give a quick thank you to all the new patrons. We've got Gwen, Matt, Andy, Mark, Ryan, Jason, Morelli, Steve and Catahoula. Thank you for supporting and thank you to all of the supporters. As usual, this podcast is basically, you know, independent and put together just by me. Um, so, you know, any support is always super gratefully received. So thank you very much. And I would also like to um, just add a quick sort of add on to that and say thank you to Kat Catahoula for sending me some nice books from Amazon this week. And it's really great that you signed up for Patreon so I could find out who you were to say thank you. Because at first I was unsure where I could find you to say thank you. Um, so yeah, that's great. And now, yeah, thank you very much for that. Let's crack on with the episode. This is... The Curious Case of Not Townsend In the early years of the 19th century, Black Rock in New York State was a standalone city of important nautical industry that rivaled its neighbouring city of Buffalo, named after a 200-foot ledge of solid rock that protruded out into the Niagara River. It naturally protected the harbour, the heart of Black Rock's shipbuilding industry. Robert Townsend was a carpenter and shipwright like many Black Rock residents, and he was descended from Sir Robert Townsend, a British emigrant who had come to the New World, settling in an upstart colony that would become Plymouth, Massachusetts. Robert Townsend had moved to Black Rock during the War of 1812 with his brothers, with ties to such early pioneers, and with skills in a much-needed trade, the Townsend family quickly picked up an excellent reputation in the local area. And once the war was over, Robert married a recent war widow, Mary Ann, and the new couple bought a patch of land near Fort Porter, building a house and settling down to start a family. Their first child, a son named William, was born in 1828 and he was followed by a further two children. After the birth of these three children, the family crossed over the international border to Canada, following work to the Wellham Canal. Robert worked on the canal for several years and then helped to build the docks in Port Dalhousie on the shores of Lake Ontario. He bought himself a small patch of farmland two miles from the port itself named May Farm. At the age of 13, William, the Townsend's eldest son, left home and went to work on the ship Mohawk as a galley hand. Though he left the service in 1844 to help on the family farm due to his father falling ill. Robert Townsend's illness proved fatal, and in 1846, he passed away. Soon after his father's death, William left the farm for the second time in his life and rejoined service, this time aboard the ship Montreal, where he worked as a second-class boy. This didn't last too long. Within two years, he deserted, though inexplicably, he went back into service on the Mohawk a year later. Once again, it wasn't to last. This time his service extended for only three months before he deserted again whilst they were docked in Cleveland in order to shirk his orders to paint the hull of the ship. Aside from his desertions, his conduct whilst in service was seen as good and he was well liked by the crew, earning the nickname of Little Davy Crockett. After his desertions, 
William floated around, jumping from employ to employ. He took work as a sailor, a farm labourer, a cooper, and eventually wound up back in Ontario working as a cab driver, running the stage line from Hamilton to Cayuga. So far, so normal in the life of William Townsend. But as a drifter and jack-of-all-trades, William dreamt of more. Known as a skilled mimic, with the ability to impersonate dialects and keen to show off his musical talents with the tambourine and violin, he formed a minstrel troupe, blacking up and touring the country, giving concerts, although it's likely that these were more along the lines of street busking rather than stadium epics. As the troops scraped by to make enough money to fuel their humble existence, William began turning his hand to the darker arts. He quickly fell in with a gang of pickpockets and found that crime was a much more lucrative business than the arts. Dropping his minstrel troop, he instead replaced them with a gang of a handful of men. The leader was an Englishman named Lettuce, and Townsend fell in line with five others under his orders, named King, Blows, Bryson, Patterson and Weaver. The gang operated around the Hamilton area of Canada on the shores of Lake Ontario. They made enough money involving themselves in petty crime, pickpocketing and robbing people akin to a low-grade gang of highwaymen. This did the gang well enough, and they evaded the law whilst keeping their crimes under the radar enough to not cause too much attention on the gang by the local law enforcement, who were busy dealing with what might now be called a crime wave. Townsend's gang were not the only group in the area, and highway robberies were becoming commonplace. Some police even theorised that the gangs were organised and working together under a larger umbrella, though any lines of inquiry that went down that route never appeared to bear any fruit. For reasons unknown, whether it was grander designs or simple robbery gone wrong, the gangs stepped up their operations in October of 1854. William Townsend's outlaw life turned upside down when he took part in a home invasion which saw him go from petty criminal to murderer in quick time. At 10pm on the evening of October the 18th, 1854, Townsend and his gang were wrapping up a long day of criminality that had seen them execute a string of robberies around the Lake Erie area. On their way home, they decided to hit Nellis Corners, a small creek in the road that housed a local store owned by John Hamilton Nellis. Rumour had it that Nellis was to take a large sum of money and would need to keep it in the house overnight until he could bank it the next day. The Nellis family were a well-known family and they had settled in Nellis Corners years prior. As night fell and the family retired to bed, John's mother, wife, child, brother and sister-in-law were all asleep in the rear bedrooms of the house, leaving only John awake by himself in the lounge. He was waiting up as he was expecting a visit, and so when he heard a knock on the door, he thought nothing of swinging it wide open to greet his guest. The visitors, however, were not who he had been quite expecting. Townsend, along with two other members of the gang, stormed into the house, their faces blacked up as a manner of disguise. John Nails attempted to react quickly to the dire situation, and as he turned and made for his revolver in the chest of drawers at the back of the room, Townsend shot him in the back, killing him in his tracks. The gang panicked, and as Nell's family members woke and entered the lounge, the scene quickly turned to one of commotion. The gang ordered Nell's family to turn over their money, though it quickly became apparent that no money was held on the property in cash. As they threatened the women, 
Townsend took John's gold watch from his wrist as a consolation and the gang quickly took off into the night before the police could even be alerted to the commotion. The gang's getaway was no less panicked or chaotic. Realising they were still short of the much-needed money they needed to make a clean break, they held up a pair of farmers travelling on the road between Nell's Corner and Cayuga. The next morning, when the High Constable of Cayuga was alerted to the crime, he immediately went in search of the gang and quickly wound up taking testimony from the pair of farmers, which allowed the authorities to gain an understanding of a direction to follow. Following the gang's chaotic trail, the constable of a local township named Robert Flanders told the High Constable that the gang had spent the night in his barn the previous night, and he'd seen them board a train bound for Buffalo at first light from the nearby Canfield station. Flanders was also able to furnish the High Constable with a name for one of the men that they were chasing. It was Townsend, he said, a local vagrant that was well known to authorities in the local area for his previous misdemeanours. Flanders joined the crew of authorities in the chase for Townsend and his gang, boarding a train for Buffalo. When they arrived the next day, they joined forces with the American police, shared the information they knew, and together carried out a sweep of all of the city's hotels, bars, dives and dens. Though there were positive IDs in several establishments, including reports of the gang staying in a room at the United States Hotel, they trailed the gang back to the station, only to find that they had doubled back and returned to Canada already, leaving the police chasing their shadows. Townsend needed money desperately, and within just a few days upon their return to Canada, reports reached the authorities that Nell's gold watch had been pawned in St. Catharines, east of Hamilton. Whilst there, a posse had surrounded Townsend, recognising him as wanted, though he managed to shoot his way out of the situation, and by the time the trading authorities reached St. Catharines, he had boarded a ship named the Westchester that was bound for Oswego, another port on Lake Ontario on the American side of the border. Flanders once again turned back and chased down the ship, which had sailed against difficult, contrary winds, allowing him to arrive in Oswego before it had docked. Upon the Westchester's arrival, he quarantined the boat in the dock and questioned the captain, only to learn of yet another disappointment. Once again, Townsend had obfuscated his escape route, switching ships during a stopover in Port Dalhousie, where he boarded another boat bound instead for Kingston. Later it was learned that whilst police traipsed around in search of the elusive criminal, he had jumped overboard from the second ship, swam to the shore, and had taken up hiding in his brother-in-law's house, apparently dressing as a woman in order to lay low until the heat dispersed from his warrant. By the way of consolation, the rest of Townsend gang had not been quite as resourceful as Townsend himself, and by now, the police had caught up with three of the members. Blows was caught in a brothel in Hamilton, ran by a mistress known to the locals as Limping Jenny, and Kings had also found himself caught up within a house on the outskirts of Hamilton. Bryson had made it the furthest of the gang, but found himself cornered and picked up 75 miles north of Toronto. In April of 1855, all three were tried in Cayuga on the charge of murdering John Hamilton Nels. Although none admitted to firing the shots, they were found guilty of colluding and as such were tried guilty as charged and sentenced to hang. Bryson, however, decided to turn Queen's evidence, giving information on the rest of the gang and having his sentence downgraded to life imprisonment in the process. 
Meanwhile, Townsend had found himself bored of his inactive lifestyle, laying low in his family home. Perhaps in need of excitement, or perhaps just tired of dressing as a woman, he hit the road after seven weeks. Rather than keeping his head down and travelling quietly, he quickly took it upon himself to rob a farmer in Port Robinson by the Welland Canal named Mr Gaynor. Gaynor proved to be hardier than Townsend had wagered, however, and he later followed him to a local inn, where he alerted Charles Ritchie, a local constable, and the pair went to arrest Townsend. Ritchie approached Townsend from behind, placed his hand on his shoulder and informed him that he was under arrest. Townsend whipped out his revolver, turned it over his shoulder and shot, killing Richard's dead on the spot. He made a clean break from the inn, with none of the locals daring to follow, though authorities were alerted to his boarding a train bound towards Woodstock. Once again, a locomotive chase was on, and the authorities in Woodstock, after being alerted, met the train as it arrived on the platform. The sheriff, four constables and the local jailer boarded the cars and searched for a man matching Townsend's description. It wasn't too long before the jailer came upon a man who he felt matched the facial description of the wanted man. However, things, he felt, were just not quite right. For one thing, the man was exceptionally well-dressed and he appeared to carry himself with a classier aura than most criminals he had met in the past. After staring at the suspect for a time, the man finally spoke out to the jailer. Oh, I know who you are at. You take me to be Townsend. Somewhat taken aback, the jailer replied in the positive, confirming to him that, yes, he was tasked with finding Townsend and he had held suspicions against him as to be the wanted man. I do favour the description very much. I've been taken for him once before today already, but I am not he. I am going west and come from the east of Rochester. Still somewhat suspicious, the jailer went to seek advice and to alert the other constables of the man that had piqued his suspicions. He was so well dressed and he had such a smile on his face that I did not arrest him. I went to take counsel with the other constables and when I went into the car again, he was gone. We saw him again afterward on the platform and concluded we would detain him. He said it was very hard, for he wanted to go west. We said it would only be for a short time, for people were coming onto the next train who could identify him. He then stood still while the train was moving away, but as it attained a good rate of speed, he darted away like a deer and jumped on the last platform of the last car, leaving us behind. Townsend had once again escaped authorities, this time with a level of theatre and audacity the police had simply not expected. After this event, things went on quiet on the trail of Townsend although there were rumours that he had joined a circus troupe for a time, travelling the States, only leaving when the ringmaster caught wind from the sheriff of Rock Island that the authorities held suspicions on his employee. The ringmaster was said to swiftly pass this information on, telling Townsend that if he really was the man the police saw, he should probably flee quickshot. That night, the man did indeed flee, apparently in the direction of California. And so it was that for over two years, William Townsend disappeared into the Canadian underground. It appears he managed to keep his head low, or at least not get caught for any crimes that he had committed, because it was not until April of 1857 that he would resurface, when a chance encounter would once again land him in the hands of the law. On the afternoon of April the 11th, 1857, 
John Lies was cleaning glasses in a hotel bar in downtown Cleveland. It wasn't a roaring shift and the bar was quiet when a railway conductor stumbled through the door with a grumpy looking man in tow. This man owes me $3.50 for a fare, he told Lies, sliding a revolver over the bar. When he pays you that and his lodging, let him have his revolver. The conductor had caught the man trying to bunk his train and when caught had been unable to pay the fare and so had offered up his revolver as pledge of payment. Not fully trusting the man, the conductor had dragged him into the hotel bar and now expected Lies to ensure the man's promise was kept. Lies, however, was not fully taking in the details the conductor was spouting at him. As soon as he had seen the man in tow, he had dropped the glass he was cleaning in shock. Lies recognised the man instantly as none other than William Townsend. Agreeing to the conductor's demands, as soon as he left the bar, he gave Townsend a drink and quietly removed himself to call the police. Townsend was arrested in the bar, jailed and left in his cell awaiting extradition to Cayuga, where he was to be charged and trialled with the murder of John Hamilton Nails in the coming assizes in what should have been a normal, open and shut court case. But here, things took a turn for the strange. Townsend was placed in a jail cell in Cleveland with two other inmates. The room had no natural light but was lit by a small candle. There were no windows, although in the day, the iron-barred door was open to allow the prisoners to freely exercise in the courtyard. It was in this dank cell that Townsend whiled away his days awaiting extradition, which was not happening at any real pace. Daily, people came to see him to identify him or just to exercise their own morbid curiosity and to look in on the murderer that they'd read so much about in the paper. The problem that officials were having, aside from holding on to a prisoner who had not yet been tried, was that Townsend was claiming not to be Townsend at all. Instead, he told the jailers, authorities and anyone else who would listen to his protest, that he was named Robert McHenry and was, he said, the son of a weaver from Glasgow, Scotland. This should have been obvious either way, but it appears it was anything but. Of the hundreds that came to visit him whilst he wasted time in jail, those that should have ID'd him were decidedly split on the matter. When a journalist from the Hamilton Spectator visited his cell to meet him, the journalist himself admitted that in Canada, opinion was split upon the matter, and many believed that if he was Townsend, he would not have allowed himself to be arrested so easily. Such had become the legendary chase that led to his many attempted arrests years prior. The mystery man asked the journalist if he would be tried in Haldemont, but when the journalist told him it was likely to be in Cayuga, he asked him if Haldemont was a city in Cayuga and professed his ignorance of Canadian geography. As the journalist made to leave his cell, not Townsend, then passed him a letter he had written whilst in jail, and he asked him to publish it, which the journalist promptly did on June 10, 1857. By this time, not Townsend had been in prison awaiting extradition for three months already. It was a long, ranting letter, but it showed a key point in the case. The man could write and appeared educated, a fact which no one was sure tallied with Townsend. The letter read, in jail, Cleveland, Ohio, Monday, June the 1st, 1857. Mr. Editor, ever since I was arrested on the 11th day of April, 1857, 
charged with being William Townsend, the murder of one Nellis in Canada, I've been subjected to endless insults and annoyances. For weeks after I was arrested, crowds of people of all conditions rushed into the jail to gratify their morbid appetites for the wonderful, gazing at me with feelings similar to those entertained by little boys when looking through the bars at the untamed Gyasdicatus. 150 policemen from all parts of the Union with their pockets filled with descriptions of murderers, pickpockets, burglars and desperados of every description have intruded themselves into my cell to discover it possible that I was a great criminal escaped from somewhere, but none of them have recognised me or seen me before anywhere, they say. A number of witnesses who knew Townsend came here to see me and unhesitatingly expressed their opinion. After a full opportunity to view me, that I was not the man Townsend, and after being put in training, bamboozled and bedeviled by the virtuous policemen of this city, they came into court and swore that I was the man, and that too, without having seen me, since they had said positively I was not what they swore I was. The papers of this city have very unjustly prejudiced my case, forestalled and created public sentiments, misrepresented the evidence, and some of them announced, without knowing one word of me or of my history, that I was surely Townsend the murderer, and that further, if I was not Townsend, I was surely some other great criminal. As Don Quixote could perceive a Helen's beauty in the brow of every scraggy which he met, so these editorial gentlemen, taking their cue from policemen who were eager for the price of my blood, could perceive arson, burglary and murder, distinctly written on every feature of the face that I had flattered myself was tolerably good looking. But my object in writing to you is not to complain, as I intend to right my wrongs in due season before an impartial tribunal. I am very anxious to go to Canada, to the county of the alleged murder, as soon as possible, but the officers are neither willing to take me over there without a requisition or warrant, or to bestir themselves in procuring the necessary papers in any reasonable time. Consequently, I am compelled to lay here in jail, but if ever I get overthrew, this accursed and ridiculous persecution will fizzle immediately, and old John Bull will drop me like a hot potato, and will swear that the whole thing was a damned Yankee trick to swindle him out of his money. I shall then return to this city, and test to the utmost the question whether there is any legal redress for the cruel wings that I have been compelled to endure, and I shall hold every man who has been a participator in this vile onslaught on me responsible for his conduct. But the police have not been satisfied with the assistance of pudding-headed Canadian knaves and fools and red-mouthed Irishmen, residents of this world in their crusade against me, but since that has failed, they have actually invoked the assistance of sorcerers and witchcraft to detect me of some great crime. A day or two ago, I received visit from a glum-faced sorcerer, or spiritual medium as he terms himself, named James Church, accompanied by an ex-policeman by the name of Bramley and his honour, Mess Darkweather. All of them were sent on emissions, as I afterwards learned, by the spirits to my cell, to get me to confess some great crime. James Church appeared to be the chief after. He commenced a jugglery by either praying or muttering some wizard-like incantations or spells for the purpose of bringing me under his influence. I could not tell which. Then commenced a great deal of mysterious talk about spheres, communications, developments and manifestations, and also about a plan that was devised by the spirits for my liberation, 
together with hints and insinuations, which I did not understand, about some case in New York they wanted me to tell about on condition of being liberated and receiving plenty of money. When I inquired what case it was that I knew anything about, they, with mysterious and knowing looks, informed me that I knew as well as they did what case it was. I said but little, wondering all the time what they were driving at and suspecting some conspiracy to injure me, but finally I got them to express their ideas in plain language. And now, Mr. Editor, what do you think that I, poor Bob McHenry, son of a Glasgow weaver, am charged by these gentlemanly emissaries from the spirit land with having been guilty of? Why nothing more nor less than a connection with the late dreadful murder of Dr. Burdell in New York City. Phew! Stand aside, O oh you worldly policemen. You are a defunct institution. Telegraphs and locomotives, you'll soon be forgotten. You are no longer any use in the detection of crime. Let James Church be made United States Marshal with instructions to extend his rope walk to the spirit land. Let Meg Morellis be made Chief of Police with instructions to employ the Witch of Endor or some of her compares as an assistant in detecting crime, and then all wickedness will be revealed and punished. Let only lazy, mercenary policemen be the mediums of communication, and then George Washington himself, if necessary, could be convicted of treason or the amiable Melanchthon of the most malignant crimes. I was, by the instructions of the spirits, they said, to confess this murder, to tell about it, the instigators of it, and procure their conviction. Then the spirits were to effect my escape, in the same manner, probably, as the liberated Paul and Silas when they were in prison, and the policemen were to get the big reward. So you see, our policemen, with the assistance of our worthy mayor and the spirits, are bound to make money out of me. If they can't succeed in swindling John Ball out of $7,000 by making him believe that I am Billy Townsend, then they can fall back on the New York Times and Herald and recover $10,000 from them by proving that I am the murderer of Dr. Burdell. Let a reward be offered for the discovery of the individual who lately attempted to assassinate the Emperor Napoleon, and they will bring plenty of men to swear that I am the man, or that I was the prime mover in the late attempt to poison Old Buck at the National Hotel, that I am the very man who murdered Mrs. Sigsby, or the veritable and much inquired for railroad baby. While whereabouts I am informed by some of my fellow prisoners, the editor of The Plain Dealer is anxious to discover, and James Church will get George Washington or old Thomas Jefferson to send a message along his rusty spiritual wires to confirm the story. All this, as well as the charge of being somebody else besides myself, would be vastly amusing, were it not for the stern reality of being kept a closed prisoner for two months on this ridiculous charge in this unwholesome prison. The letter was signed off, respectfully yours, Robert J. McHenry. It painted the picture of a man who was apparently reasonably well-educated and clearly angry at his current treatment. The letter was printed in newspapers in both the US and in Canada, and whilst it achieved nothing in allowing him freedom, opinion on who the man actually was became more and more divided. Seven days later, on June the 17th, the prisoner was extradited to Canada in order to stand trial on the 27th of September, 1857. This would be over six months from his original arrest. During the wait for his trial, the press spoke of him as such. 
If he really be Townsend, he is one of the coldest-blooded murderers on record. And if he be not, is decidedly one of the most cruelly persecuted men that we know of. At least, as far as the authorities could see, the issue of who the man was would soon be cleared up. In Cleveland, authorities only found 16 witnesses who had known Townsend at all, and many were unsure if they would be able to positively ID him still, their original relations either being not strong enough or so long ago. Of these 16, only two said that they could positively identify him as Townsend, a clergyman who he had lived with for several years and a sailor who he knew during his years in service. Now the extradition to Cayuga was complete, hundreds would know him by sight. Such was his reputation and both social and criminal life in the Cayuga area. For Townsend, or not Townsend, he still maintained up until his trial that he was McHenry, and he had been in California prospecting for gold at the time of the murder. During his extradition process, he was incarcerated for a stopover in Toronto, where the visits to his cell immediately began. Many visitors spoke of how they thought the prisoner was not Townsend. His mannerisms, they said, bred an air of innocence, enough so that they were willing to bet money on his freedom for being granted in court, and many did just that, as the trial had attracted a thriving betting market, even amongst men in the government. At the same time, during the same stopover, he tried to escape his incarceration by feigning illness. His escape attempt caused such an alarm that jailers saw fit to call in a blacksmith to rivet him into extra shackles. As he arrived in Cayuga to await trial, the public opinion in Canada was none the clearer than it had been in Cleveland. Finally, Thursday, September the 27th rolled round and the trial of the man for the murder of John Hamilton Nels was underway. The day before had seen such an influx of interested parties come to Cayuga that the hotels were completely full with people paying to sleep only in vacant armchairs. During the process, the mystery prisoner was addressed and tried as William Townsend. His appearance as he entered the courtroom was, according to the press, anything but repulsive, and his countenance indicated a degree of intelligence which we did not expect to see. The previous Monday had seen a fresh new suit arrive in the Cayuga jail, allowing Townsend to dress himself in a clean suit for the occasion. He showed no symptoms of fear, however it had been noted that during his time in prison awaiting trial, he had lashed out towards many of his visitors in irritation, which had played against him, with many now bitter enemies who hesitate not to express their hope of his conviction and punishment. The prisoner was so confident in the result of the trial that he went to court with no counsel at all. His only defence was to plead that he was not guilty, simply by the fact that he was not Townsend at all. Upon the commencement of the trial, when asked by the judge if he had counsel and was ready to be tried, he simply replied, I have not asked for anyone to assist me. I don't think there is any necessity. I was ready for trial three months ago. The prosecution, however, came well armed. As witnesses, they had the deputy sheriff of Cayuga, who had sailed with Townsend in service many years prior, as well as a whole string of men and women, from victims to sex workers, who claimed to know Townsend intimately enough to be able to recognise him down to minute details. Upon seeing the bleak situation that surrounded him, the prison decided to take on the counsel that had previously been offered to him in the form of solicitors Mr Freeman and Mr Starr. 
Both men were well known and relatively infamous for their defence duties and importantly for the prisoner, both believed him to be not Townsend and offered their services gratis. The day before his trial, the prisoner's beard was shaved on order of the Crown Prosecutor. The barber who carried out the shaving later said that he was sure the man was Townsend, who he knew well. Bryson, the gang member who had turned Queen's evidence, was also brought into the prisoner's cell on the day before the trial and he too immediately confirmed him to be Townsend. As far as the prosecution felt, they were in a good position as the trial began with the slamming down of the judge's hammer. The prisoner is a man of about 5 feet 7 inches, as near as I can judge. His complexion is fair, inclined to be sandy. He has a very large eye of a peculiar light blue. His hair is brown, neither very dark nor very light. His forehead is large, heavy and rather high than the reverse. His eyebrows are of a lighter tint than his hair, well arched and do not meet. His nose is large, thick at the tip and rather bent from the bridge downward. His mouth is not in any way singular. He has a scar above his left eyebrow, about half an inch long and inclining towards the temple, also one on his underlip, the same size as the other. His chin is long and prominent, his cheekbone downwards, a large broad scar extends, nearly three inches long. He appears to be about 30 years of age. The trial was focused on one simple question from the outset. Was the man standing in the dock Townsend, or was he McHenry? The first witness called to stand was Lucy Humphrey, John Hamilton Nell's sister-in-law who had been in Nell's corner on the night of the failed robbery and murder, although she told the court that she would be unable to recognise the men due to their disguises, which apparently consisted of a fake beard on the part of the ringleader Townsend. Next up to the stand was Augustus Nels, John Nels' brother, who was also in the house on the night of the crime, though once again was unable to positively identify any of the culprits. The doctor who attended Nels gave a brief description of the state that he had found him in upon his call and then saw Bryson in the dock, Townsend fellow gang member. Immediately, Bryson told the court that the prisoner was William Townsend which caused the courtroom to erupt into sensation. Once the courtroom had settled down, he continued, I have not the slightest doubt that I am speaking to the man who charged and discharged the pistol which shot Nels. The prisoner, the leader of the party, planned the robbery at Hamilton. The prisoner put on a false moustache and whisker made of buffalo hair. He put them on before robbing Mr Nels. No one could easily recognise Townsend when he had the whiskers on. The prisoner is a good hand at imitating voices. Happy to give the government their pennies worth, he then went on to detail a host of other crimes and murders that Townsend had committed and admitted to him in the past, before pleading his own innocence in the murder and expressing his hope that his life imprisonment could be shortened, though he was eventually stopped by the judge for providing evidence which had nothing to do with the case for which he was standing trial. He went on to explain that both he and Townsend had worn earrings in their ears when they were in the gang together, though now they appeared to be closed up in the prisoner's case. After Bryson's meandering testimony, Mrs Hatch was called, a woman from Hamilton who claimed to the court that there is no one in Hamilton that I knew better than Townsend. She then told the court that she believed the prisoner to be Townsend. The opening day had been a drawn-out affair with many long, meandering testimonies 
and at five o'clock, when the court closed session, none were really any more the clearer. The second day of the trial opened with the continuation of Mrs. Hatch's testimony. She told the court that although she had never heard Townsend read, she had been led to believe that he had pretty good learning and that she had known him to be good at handsprings, though it's fairly unclear exactly what relevance that held for anyone. Next came testimony of two men who had known Townsend from his days sailing on Lake Ontario. The first stated he could positively identify the prisoner as Townsend due to his scars. However, the second man gave a somewhat more muddled testimony. He spoke in Toronto with a more Scottish accent than previously. He used to mumble his words, rather. He used to raise his head suddenly and then suddenly put it down after looking at a person. He was not at that time of any intellectual character. Townsend's eye was not, I think, very large. I don't know what colour it was, but I should imagine blue. The prisoner holds his head differently from what he used to do. If the scar were not on his face, I should doubt if he were Townsend. More witnesses were called and more deliberation over the prisoner's scar took place. Some saying that they matched Townsend, whilst others spoke of how they had slightly changed positions or that the prisoner's eyes had changed colour, or that even his eyebrows were now further apart than Townsend's were that they remembered. The third day of the trial opened to some scandal, when it became apparent that some members of the jury had been found to have placed bets on the outcome of the trial. Although the judge told the court that it would be a disgraceful thing for any members of the jury to have been found betting on the outcome, and despite the fact that several members openly admitted that they had bet some, it appeared that none were removed from duty and the day's testimonies kicked off as usual. More debate was expressed as to the prisoner's scars, this time talking of scars all over his body and even went into the business of Townsend's toe joints being larger than the prisoner's. The conclusions remained split, with around half the witnesses claiming that the prisoner to positively identify as Townsend whilst the other half were entirely unsure. Many were asked if they were aware that a reward was on Townsend's head for any information given that would end in his arrest and positive judgement, all of which said they were aware, and only a few speaking out against the insinuation that they were motivated to identify the prisoner by the promise of a cash reward. The final day of the trial saw Townsend's own family take the stand as witnesses, along with close friends of the family, One of the most damning testimonies for the prosecution was that of Ezra Smith, a family friend who claimed to have known the Townsends for over 15 years, and who told the court that she had little doubt that Townsend was the murderer and that she had no sympathy for him. In the case of the prisoner, however, she stated, I have not the least doubt I should know Townsend if I saw him. I know I should. The prisoner is not William Townsend. If these were my last words, I should say the same. I do say that if the court were all to swear the prisoner was William Townsend, I would not believe it. He had dark eyes, not blue ones. If the prisoner himself were to say his name was William Townsend, I should not believe him. The next person on the stand was a sailor who knew Townsend during the days he sailed in the government service, and who told the court, for some reason or another, that Townsend had often talked a great deal about pumpkin pie and of how he could not grow a beard as he had had a woman's face, concluding that the prisoner was not the man unless he had another head on. 
When Townsend's mother took the stand, she told the court how William could read and write, though in a coarse hand and was a poor speller. Then came the evidence of both his sisters. All three of the Townsend's family spoke of how Townsend had had a small anchor tattoo on his wrist with his initials that he had tattooed during his time on the Mohawk, which the prisoner did not have, and all three claimed the prisoner was not their family member. The jury finally retired at 3pm to make their deliberations after being told that they had only one question to answer, which was whether the prisoner had murdered Nels or not. By this point in the trial, this was a drastic oversimplification of their duty, and one which was evidenced by the fact that seven hours later, at 10pm, when the jury were called upon, a spokesperson, one Mr Hopkins, was put forward to explain to the court that the jury was still split over a decision. Mr Hopkins said that the minority were so firm in their opinion that no unanimous conclusion could be arrived at. One of the jurors is said to have asserted that he would sit on his seat until he was carried out a corpse rather than convict the prisoner. With seven members of the jury standing for a conviction, four against and one doubtful, the judge finally gave in and disbanded the jury, forcing the trial to end with an inconclusive verdict. The prisoner was forced to remain in jail for a further six months, whereby he would have to stand trial once again in the next assizes. Upon hearing this verdict, he only stated that it was the damnedest piece of business he ever came across. And so it was that Townsend, or rather, not Townsend, wound up wasting away the days, weeks and months in jail for a further six months to await his second trial. The first trial of Townsend, or not Townsend, had come dangerously close to a complete farce. Many of the witnesses, both for the prosecution and defence, appeared to hold ulterior motives, and many gave evidence which baffled the court, either in its contrary opinion, such as the boarder, who had lived with Townsend for some time, who in courts where he didn't know the prisoner at all, or just for the sheer insignificance of the details provided. The second trial was therefore decided would not be for the murder of Nels, but for the murder instead of Constable Ritchie. This, they evidently assumed, would have a higher success. In the downtime between trials, rumours swirled around Canada, stories that the judge had been an uncle of Townsend, or that the bailiff who escorted the prisoner from the trial to his cell in Cayuga was in fact Townsend himself in disguise. Thankfully, the prisoner was keen to break such rumour and fill the void himself, with information he felt needed to be made public. He once again wrote a letter with details of which he said were his past, and he managed to secure it into the possession of a visiting journalist. His letter was printed on October 10th, 1857 and read, My dear sir, you ask me why I keep my identity in the dark that you may not fall into the same error as some of the others of the press have done to consider me as a very questionable character from the fact of my not proving who I am. My motives and reasons for pursuing such a course are many. It is a momentary triumph that I am running for, nor am I in any haste about establishing my character and identity beyond dispute. I have, several times in my life, been considered a very eccentric character and fond of experimenting upon things that were considered desperate by others. In fact, my whole life has been a succession of experiments. As I considered that this prosecution a wanton persecution, nothing else but an experiment with a view of making money by the operation as the mainspring to everything that is undertaken in this money-loving age, 
I conceived the idea of experimenting upon human nature, as I considered this the best opportunity I had come across, for my life had not been passed in crowded cities, but in isolated places where I had no opportunity of seeing the machinery of society and law in operation. I will not dwell upon the particulars at present, but say there was such a strong prejudice raised in Cleveland that I was William Townsend, that any person of respectability who raised his voice to the contrary was hooted at. I was always ready and willing to come to Canada. Previous to the time I was bought, when Sheriff Hobson came to Cleveland, I volunteered to go with him, but the authorities would not allow it. Their object was to go through the regular course and receive the expenses that they might be at. I will here state my knowledge of Canada. In the summer of 1837, I left the village of Kamlachie, the place where I was residing at the time, on the Glasgow and Edinburgh Road. In the fall, I arrived in Quebec, stopped a few weeks at Montreal, came to St. John's, Lower Canada, stayed with my cousin, a sergeant in the 71st Regiment, then lying at St. John's between the barracks and Chambly, a small village down the lake. I stopped there the winters of 39 and 40. When navigation opened on Lake Champlain, I bid goodbye to my cousin and British North America. I arrived in New York and have resided all the time since in the United States, or territories, with the exception of about two years. I sailed out of the port of Liverpool in England in the fall of 1852. In December, I left Buffalo on board the brig Powhatan with a load of railroad iron bound for Cleveland. Coming up the lake, a dreadful storm set in from the southward and westward, and as we were far out in the lake at the time, our best chance was to run for the Canada shore. With difficulty, we made the mouth of the Grand River with some 50 more vessels. There, I think, was beached the hamlet of Buffalo. We stayed there a few days and then put to sea again for Cleveland. Now, sir, notwithstanding all that has been sworn to, published, talked of about my being in Canada and knowing the different localities of places, what I have stated of the Grand River coming through as an emigrant boy is all I know of Canada or its people. When I landed in Canada as the supposed Townsend, from the reception I received in Toronto, from the fact of certain parties pretending to recognise me as Townsend, from the fact of my being informed that I could not have a hearing before September unless I had money to sue out a writ of habeas corpus, that commodity I had not. Consequently, I had to dispense with the idea of enjoying what it always brings, protection, peace, honour and plenty. After a few days, I arrived at Cayuga, from 50 to 100 of a day who knew Townsend came to see me and said I was not the man, and the first announcement from the press was in my favour. In the meantime, Eli Tupper, who swore to me in Cleveland as Townsend, came along and a few more of the conspirators. Gradually, the village journalist commenced to mystify what was made a positive fact, as I lay in my solitary cell, viewing the contending elements of human nature conjuring up ideas that I might be the man or one of the gang. This became necessary to those who had bets on the identity. If they could not swear themselves, it must be done by proxy. So hosts of persons came, and by every means tried to make me believe that they had seen me at such and such a place and tried to have me make admission to the same. The jobbers, speculators, pimps, stuffers and things under the influence of liquor came and in a familiar manner wished to shake hands with me as old acquaintances. As I could read in the countenances, the wish came from the thought 
and seem to say what a pity he is not a little more like the Townsend. As I always was of an inquiring turn of mind, my experiment in propensity had a beautiful opportunity to prove what amount of corruption there was in the country, what a corrupt and degraded press would bring forth, with the love of a few paltry dollars would weigh in the scale of human integrity and justice, for I could see as plain as day their objects to prostitute the truth, and sell me, if they could, for the reward. It is not necessary to mention names at present, but they are well known to me. Some who did not appear on this stand against me were largely interested in backing up Tom, Dick and Harry to view me, to examine me most particularly. I was conscious of never being in a country and having seen a family in jail, having had correct descriptions of him, of our total dissimilarity, both physically, mentally and morally, as my very motion was watched, runners inquiring what effort was making to bring forward testimony. I came to the conclusion that they were balancing the case. I then came to the determination to see what Canada was made of and rest the whole case with them. Not that I was entirely indifferent to the opinion of the public, nor will I be. When I consider the proper time comes, I am too sensitive a man not to repel the base slanders that have been heaped upon me. As considerable prejudice existed against the very name of Townsend, I wished to see how far this would affect the judge, jury and solicitor general. How far their reason has been blinded by passion I have proved. I wouldn't change places with the judge, solicitor general or one of the jury who were opposed in any shape to acquit me on such evidence. No, in my opinion, I have as good a thing on Haldeman County, the best perhaps that ever man had. What will any man of common sense say who knows the circumstances? Within a few miles of his residence, within a few miles of where the murder was committed, a man known by thousands with three years to meditate on the subject of identity and then try to a man in that mature deliberation of three years, then for a judge to raise a doubt as to who killed Nels, why the idea is preposterous. If his lordship had been candid enough to have said in the beginning, before one witness was examined, that you, the prisoner, must prove you are not William Townsend, and after that, you must prove that you did not kill John Hamilton Nails, and the same evidence must come from some place out of Canada, and besides, you must prove who you are. Had this been candidly stated, the sham trial might have been dispensed with, for it was evident to any man of any medium intelligence that he would not be satisfied with the fact proved beyond dispute that I was not Townsend or in the gang. From the fact of my not proving on the trial who I am, should not dispose persons to imagine that I am a bad character. I looked at the charge as a gross absurdity, a fraud so glaring that for the life of me I could not see how they could palm me off as Townsend. No, gentlemen, I am in no manner diffident to reveal to the world who I am and every act of my life. With reference to my character, it may be proper to say it is quite probable I am not free from the faults, follies and vices which are too commonly associated with humanity. It has not been set up for an example of others and no claims have been made before the public on account of excellency and virtue. Neither is there any matter before the public where the excellency of my virtue or its sufficiency is involved as a necessary subject on inquiry. The question before the public is whether I am Townsend or somebody else. In pursuing the course I have in this case, I wish to shew up the gross absurdity of the charge by giving the people of Canada the privilege of deciding whether I am the man or not.
I claim that what is Caesar's should be rendered unto him. I claim by right of discovery all credit that may be attached to the circumstances of laying bare the nest of perjurers that have been lurking about the country to the danger of life and property. If I have gained a single point by doing a service to the community, by putting them on their guard against such reptiles in human form, I shall be amply repaid by the consolation that will be derived from doing the same. To those who have kindly manifested a disposition to see I had justice done me, receive my kind regards, and be assured that you will have no reason to regret the steps you have taken, to see an innocent man and a stranger in the country have justice done to him. Until I have collected all the perjurers' names who will be willing to slip up and swear to a falsehood in consideration of money or to please some interested party in my conviction, will I say but little who I am, for never was there such a gross fraud attempted upon the public. What a compliment this decision will be to the intelligence of Haldemand, when handed down to posterity, when the rising generation will raise the finger of scorn and say, there goes a Townsend juror, or you are as intelligent as a Townsend juror. When I have exposed to the public the base and diabolical plots that have been organised to convict me of this charge, then we will pause to think on what base purposes the machinery of this law is applied to. If I suffer in your estimation in those imputations that have been cast upon my character, I earnestly desire you to be patient. I am willing to suffer that good may come thereof. As Byron says, the white rose shall bloom in his bonnet again, should he prove the true son of Donald McBain. Respectfully yours, R.J. McHenry. For this second letter, it appears that either Townsend was playing out some kind of ingenious long game, or not Townsend, was intelligent but somewhat unhinged, intent on the idea that he was providing a great public service in uncovering deep corruption through his unjustful incarceration. Finally, with doubts settling in, witnesses were called to visit the prisoner with Scottish backgrounds to vouch or discredit his Scottish dialect. The prisoner was soon enough said to have spoken with a convincing enough accent, but stranger still was that he was able to give details of the village he claimed to have been from in Glasgow that were confirmed by other members of the public who had also come from the same town. The press too were now beginning to change tack, describing him as fluent and fearless in conversation and is evidently a man of a considerable intelligence. Three days later, the headline in the paper ran, McHenry all but proved innocent. This headline was influenced by a sworn affidavit written by the mate on the ship Powhatan that Not Townsend had written of in his letter, swearing that he had sailed with McHenry during 1852 and that he was an excellent cook and had left the ship in December, declaring his intention to travel to California and seek his fortune prospecting for gold. If any of this could be proven, then it would have placed the prisoner in California at the time of Nell's murder. But of course, he also still had to prove that he was not Townsend in the first place. The second trial began on March the 26th, 1858. Much of the evidence both for and against the prisoner played out in the same vein as the previous trial, with witnesses claiming both for and against his identification as either Townsend or McHenry. For every witness the prosecution brought to the stand who could outright claim the man to be Townsend, the defence hit back with a witness who could claim him to be in California at the time of the murder, going by the name McHenry. 
The court ran late almost every night of the trial, at times standing for over 12 hours and not concluding until past 10pm at night. On the ninth day, the defence finally gave their closing speech to the court, highlighting that in the first trial, the hordes of witnesses for the prosecution had given testimony only on promise of reward and were people of low character. The jury went out to make their deliberations and on the tenth day returned their verdict that the prisoner at this bar was McHenry and not guilty. With the trials wrapped up and no charges brought against him, the prisoner, now officially not Townsend, was promptly discharged on £100 bail. Contrary to his previous protestations in his long and overly dramatic letters, not Townsend did not charge the state for injustice, nor any of the witnesses for perjury. In fact, he didn't appear to do anything at all, other than to disappear from history altogether. For a man with so much fire in his belly, he appeared to bow out without so much as a whimper. Had then he really been McHenry, or was it all just smoke and mirrors by Townsend in order to escape prosecution? Why had he not raised more of a fuss for being wrongfully incarcerated for over 13 months? If the prisoner really was Townsend, the answer is obvious. He felt it better to turn tail and keep his head down rather than try his luck any further. If the man had been McHenry, however, then the silence seems entirely against the man's character. It's a troubling question which has no answer. Failing this, if the prisoner really was not Townsend, why had he not confessed to being McHenry during his first trial, and why had he wanted to keep his past so secret in the first place? If he really was McHenry, had the two men really appeared so much alike as to confuse so many witnesses, leaving so many completely unsure as to his identity at all, even after they had known Townsend for so many years? Why were some more convinced than others? Or had Townsend, who had enjoyed a reputation as a skilled impersonator, played the greatest long game the legal courts of Canada have ever seen, hoodwinking so many in the process? One curious final twist came in 1931 with the publication of a book by William Wallace Stewart titled Murders and Mysteries, in which the author sought to get to the bottom of the case. He found that there never was a Robert J. McHenry in Scotland during the time he was meant to have been there, nor was there any record of him travelling to Canada. In fact, in his book, Stewart suggests that the man tried twice for the murders committed by Townsend was in fact neither Townsend nor McHenry, but he was very possibly a deserter from the British Army in Canada who could not give his real identity through fear of being captured and facing capital charges. In conclusion, we are left with the words of the defence, spoken in closing concerning the case as a whole. We have all heard of cases in which an innocent man was convicted of an offence committed by someone else. We have heard, too, of cases in which the corpses of dead men have been sworn to as those of persons yet alive. But there does not occur to my recollection a single instance in which a man whom everybody knew, and who having committing a grave offence, returns whence he fled after a long absence of three years, could not be identified by at least the majority of those who were formerly acquainted with him. Yet such, some say, is the fact as it regards the present prisoner. After all is said and done, 
we're left with the original question. Just who was not Townsend, anyway? So there we go with the quirky tale of not Townsend. And I think there's definitely a few bits in there that are suspicious as hell as to who not Townsend may have been. So we'll have a little bit of guesswork after these advert breaks as usual. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that, you know, I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books, which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS, and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month, including your first credit to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel and once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool. But a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories patron. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, full back catalogue of bonus episodes including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content you get access to all my research notes for each episode and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as one dollar a month so if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen Let's get back to the show. Welcome back for those who had adverts and for those who didn't, high bloody five for being patrons. Um, So yeah, not Townsend. There are a few bits in this one. So Townsend, the real Townsend, was supposedly, I love the fact that, you know, he'd run away with a circus troupe. And then when you find out that he actually did robberies with fake beards, uh, that was amazing. <laughs> like, he actually put on a fake moustache and a fake beard made out of buffalo hair. So apparently he was great at impersonations. How great he was is, you know, up for debate. I have no idea. But if this really was him, was he just putting on a big impersonation? I, I guess is the, the big question. And I suppose, first of all, you've got to really look at those those letters. I mean, the immediate, the very immediate thing that sticks out, they, they were wordy as hell and and a bit, a bit unwieldy, really. But I really wanted to quote them in full because I really wanted to show how he actually had written. It, it, they're, they're pretty full on. I mean, I know they meander a lot and stuff, but they, they show, I think, like a, a relatively 
well-read and educated guy. And so those letters, they really stand out. His mum said that he wasn't that well-read and he couldn't spell that well. But I'm not sure that the testimony of his family seemed a bit off anyway. I always intend to be inclined to believe that these sort of criminals from the 19th century and that were, were probably dumb, you know, like they, or at least they had no education and stuff because, you know, actually a lot of people just didn't have education in those days, and especially if you came from a poorer background, you wouldn't have had ever education. And the criminals tended to come from poorer backgrounds. Therefore, you know, the majority of them could could rarely sort of read or write, or you often find out that they couldn't read or write. But I suppose this guy, you know, Townsend, he did come from like a reasonable background, like relatively good. So there's no reason for why he couldn't have been able to read and write. But I mean, those letters, I mean, he quoted Byron. So, I mean, I don't, that's really kind of suspicious. But he had a long time to write them. He had months to sit in jail writing them. You know, it's not like he, he didn't have to have just written them all in one go. I mean, there's a lot of this that I just don't get. One of the most annoying things about it is that we're never really going to know how similar they looked. But, I mean, we're kind of led to believe that they look pretty similar. Because although some people said that that definitely wasn't him, I mean, the thing is, is the testimonies were so nonsense it seemed like most people giving testimony had ulterior motives. I mean, quite aside from the jury who were found to be betting on the case, which was an absolute farce. And apart from those guys, everyone else seemed to be kind of, you know, taking bribes or there was ulterior motives. If they were betting on it, all of those witnesses that testified against him could have been doing it because they had bets on, right? Uh, the the guy who most strongly, when you read the court transcripts, the guy who most strongly kind of goes in for him is, surprise, surprise, Bryson, who turned Queen's evidence against him. But of course he's going to do that because he wants his own... I mean, he actually makes it quite clear. He starts off by saying, that's definitely the man. Like, that's definitely Townsend. And then he immediately puts, like, all his the guilt onto him. So he says, you know, that's definitely Townsend. And when we did the robbery that he planned, he shot the gun, blah, blah, blah. So he immediately like unloads all of the guilt onto Townsend. Now, you know, if he was a smart man, he would have just left it at that. And it probably still would have been sin through. But he's obviously not a smart man because he then goes on to sort of talk about how he thinks that Townsend's so guilty, in fact, that he should have his own sentence lowered. I mean, talk about putting your foot in it. It sort of shows that he's clearly got an ulterior motive for dobbing him in, basically. And, you know, he wants, he probably wants his Queen's evidence to be seen as like a plus, you know, like a net win for the police so that he won't, you know, the threat of hanging. I mean, he once it's done, it's done, but you'd still have that kind of, oh, you know, this better, I hope this works out sort of feel about it I would have thought sort of lurking in the back of your mind so I mean all of the testimonies are nonsense really and the one testimony that really kind of goes at him is possibly the biggest nonsense I don't think any of the testimonies is of any use almost but you still have to believe that he he probably looks alike so what what we left with was he Townsend and was Townsend impersonating this Scottish guy was he the Scottish guy, and he just looked unbelievably like Townsend. 
Or did he not look like Townsend at all? Was the entire thing just a massive farce propagated by people who were trying to make money out of it? Which is what he essentially gets at when he writes the letters. But if that's the case, he wrote when he writes those, writes those letters, he's, he shows quite a lot of conviction in his aggression towards the people who are persecuting him. So why then, when he's let off, does he not go in for like perjury charges and, you know, wrongful incarceration? I mean, he surely would be owed for 13 months incarceration. You would thought that he would be owed quite a bit of money by the state for wrongful conviction or wrongful incarceration, rather. So why does he not do that? Why does he just disappear? That, for me, is one of the most kind of suspicious things about it all. I felt like there was elements here of Kaiser Soze. I could just I could just imagine him walking out of the trial down the road and then poof like that, he's gone. You know, just <laughs> it kind of reminded me of that. And it, and I could definitely see it being that being Townsend, you know. So he said he was in California uh, prospecting for gold during the time of the murder. But a lot of the witnesses came from later sort of 54, 55, before he got caught up in Cleveland. So there's that other rumour that he was actually a part of the circus troupe, which, again, I absolutely love the fact that he joined a travelling circus. And the police had tracked him down and told the ringmaster, in confidence, apparently, look, there's this guy working for you, we're tracking him, we're going to have him. So then the ringmaster immediately went to (laughs) to Townsend and said, look, they're after a guy called Townsend. If that's you, you should leave. So then Townsend leaves to, towards California, which would lump him in California anyway. But it would, of course, then be later and it would be after the murder. But people can get dates wrong. And he was there in 54 or he was there after the murder. You can see how one could conflate that testimony to seem like he was there longer than he was so even that is a big web of confusion really basically we're kind of left just saying pick which one you like the best and I think the story that I most want it to be is that he was in fact Townsend and he did speak in a Scottish accent for 13 months (laughs) in a prison and then go on trial and pull a swift one over everybody by calling himself Robert J. McHenry. Because in 1931, you had William Wallace Stewart who researched him and tried to find Robert J. McHenry and couldn't. So as much as his story of Scotland might have convinced people, it doesn't appear to be true. Because by by like mid to late 19th century, Scotland and England had a pretty robust system of documentation for citizens and what they were doing you know we, we, for, for hundreds of and hundreds of years we were kind of holding censuses and document documenting like births death certificates and all that kind of stuff it wasn't like frontier land you know you couldn't just disappear like that so there should be at least some record of him somewhere but there's not there, there seems to be so much in this that makes you think no he, he was just robert j mchenry and he just got wrapped up in it he just got caught up in it but then you hear these little things like that and in fact, they're not little, they're huge. Because if there was no Robert J. McHenry, he can't have existed. It just leads you back to the, to the, the question, like, was he Townsend then? 
was that Townsend just putting on a Scottish accent and repeating a story of, you know, a, a town in Scotland that he'd heard someone talk about. I mean, he got around, you know, his life was quite a, adventurous. So I think he, you know, he, he certainly would have heard a few tales. And it, you've only got to remember, you know, get drinking with a Scottish guy one night and learn all about where he's from to then sort of store that one away for later and bring it out when you need. And suddenly you've got an entire backstory that no one can really question. I really want it to be that not Townsend was actually Townsend. And he he managed to kind of, yeah, pull, pull a fast one over everyone. Not because I want murderers to get away with stuff. I mean, William Townsend seems like a bit of a shifty git, to be honest. But I just love the idea that he could have impersonated someone for that long and got away with it beat that many people i wonder if he just saw an opportunity like at first he kind of went right i'll just pretend to be someone else and then i think that maybe perhaps there was quite a lot of corruption going on and so he just thought right i can ride this because with all this corruption it's just going to make matters more and more confused so i'm just going to ride it out and perhaps that's what he did maybe the corruption was true but it just aided in his ability to lie his way out of it like lie and cheat his way out of it i'd love to hear everyone's opinions on this one basically anyway if you think it was townsend or not townsend it's all going to be speculation because no we're never going to know but it's a cracking little story i thought it was a quirky little story but yeah i hope you all enjoyed it so earlier at the start of the episode i mentioned the second anniversary episode that's going to be at the award episode like it was last year so i've already asked patrons to sort of um suggest some awards and on, our, on the YouTube stream the other night, we had some people picking some awards as well. So we got things like best hat for a start was one. And uh, which character would we least like to sit next to on a transatlantic flight? So these are all going to be like characters from Dark Histories in the last calendar year, basically June to June, June 2018 to June 2019. But I would like people to come on and make the episode with me. So what I would like to do is, rather than present the awards by myself, because that's just lonely and sad, it would be cool if you guys would like to basically come on and do an award with me. So each person can do a different award. If you would like to be involved in that, let me know. Send me an email, contact at darkhistories.com or go to darkhistories.com website. You'll find all the email and stuff there and different ways that you can contact me. And let me know and we'll arrange it and it'll be great fun. All you need is Skype. I will Skype you and I'll record everything on my end. So you won't need any fancy recording equipment or anything. You just need Skype and we can do it. And and everyone can record a, a little piece of the episode or, you know, not everyone, but hopefully everyone that wants to be involved can record a little bit of the episode and we can make a kind of, you know, a fun communal episode. It'll be great fun. And I really hope everyone gets involved. If you want to be involved in that, like I say, we'll be recording in July and all you've got to do is send me an email, let me know, contact at darkhistories.com. Once again, thanks very much for listening. If you can find it in your heart to jump in on the review drive for this month, please go ahead and do so. Don't forget to take a screenshot of it and send it to social at darkhistories.com and we'll get a sticker pack to you. Um, so that'd be cool. I say this is like kind of a yearly drive i guess so you know after this i will do my best not to mention not to review beg and mention reviews 
ever again until next year. So basically, yeah, just put up with it for now. Chuck us a review when you've got a couple of minutes to spare and that'd be amazing. Be part of the drive. And hopefully we can get the reviews, you know, up to a bit more of a level that is kind of proportionate with the listenership. So that'd be amazing if you can do that. Anyway, enough of that. Live stream will be next week. Details to be confirmed. I'll let everyone know on the socials. If you want to get on the socials, just go darkhistories.com. We've got Instagram, we've got Twitter and Facebook, all that kind of jazz. Go to darkhistories.com. You'll find everything there, including ways you can support. And if you'd like to support, that would also be fantastic. Anyway, I'm going to leave that there. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Say it was a little bit different, but I hope it was enjoyable. I'll see you all either at the live stream in a week or for another episode in two. Sleep tight.